Greg Johnson is the CEO of Lifelink. He is a Silicon Valley veteran with more than 25 years of sales, marketing, and product management experience. He was the co-founder and chief marketing officer at GT Nexus, where he led the company's global marketing and business development operations until 2015, when the company was acquired by Infor for $675 million. Prior to GT Nexus, he was at Scopus Technology, an early leader in customer relationship management software. Before Scopus, he held an executive sales role at Neuron Data, an AI slash expert systems company. He began his career at Ingress Corporation, a pioneer in relational database management systems. Greg also has a BA in English from the University of California at Davis. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alan. Good to be here. Hi, Josh. Good to be here as well. Thanks so much, Greg. Um, maybe to kick things off, Alan kind of mentioned a bit of your story. Um, you know, you started in SoGC Nexus, uh, which uh, was a supply chain software company. And then in 2016, you decided to enter the health tech space with Lifelink. And I think the big question is, well, why? I mean, it's funny, Greg, because um, whenever I meet people interested in getting into health tech, I'll try to convince them not to do it because there's so many barriers. It's such a tough market. Um, I guess, given that your background wasn't in healthcare, like how did that even happen? Why did you decide to go into it? Yeah, well, my background is in, in some ways, maybe a, a way to kind of understand that shift is I have a background in doing hard things. <laughs> so, you know, and I'm a technology person. And I think in some ways solving complicated, hard problems with technology, kind of at the intersection of business need and technology innovation, is super intriguing to me personally. Uh, you know, my last venture with GT Nexus was all about global supply chain and supply chain control. So getting large companies and their supplier networks and their logistics networks to coordinate uh, and orchestrate process was the focus of that company. I think healthcare is so, um, so rich and fascinating with its complexity and its opportunity for increased efficiency and insight um, it, it's almost unavoidable. If you, if, you, if you care about innovation, if you care about making a meaningful impact, you can get all of it in healthcare. So in some ways that was really the driving force for my interest in getting into healthcare. Uh, I'm five and a half years into it now. I feel like I'm a, I'm a studier by nature. So I love coming into a, to a domain and, and bringing people around me that know the domain and together we can build something really breakthrough. I should also say that I come from a family of public health care service people. You know, my father was with NIH for a number of years. He was the U.S. Uh, rep to the World Health Organization in the 1990s. I lived abroad for a lot of my life. I grew up in, um, in, in Bangkok, Thailand, in New Delhi, India, where my father was with the State Department. He was the, the scientific and, and technology attache to India for a number of years in the State Department. So I, I feel like I, I, I grew up around healthcare and um, in some ways it's, 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 I've come full circle. I'm back in the family again. So I'm, I'm looking forward to a, to a deep and uh, enduring career in healthcare from here on out. That's, oh, that's amazing. amazing. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Alan, go ahead. <laughs> no, that's okay. I, I wanted to bridge over to what you're currently doing with Lifelink. Uh, Lifelink's core product is essentially chatbots for health systems to engage with patients. Um, and, and so kind of going back to what the roots of healthcare, where it is a very human interaction, and that's, that's what's led uh, or played such a traditional role in healthcare is this human touch. So I, I'm curious, what's changed in the market uh, in your eyes? And, and why do you feel like 
right now is the right time for digital patient engagement and, and chatbots. I think digital engagement is such a, uh, an important dimension across all industries right now, not just in healthcare, but any place where consumers connect with business, that digital engagement uh, dimension is central. I mean, it's the key to doing so much. The thing that's changed for us, and the reason that I think LifeLink is that the technology that we're building is so key is, you know, the thing that we're solving is really a, a very simple thing in some ways. It's, it's how to make that engagement simple and low friction. And the, you know, the original interface, human interface is language. It's what we're doing right now, we're, we're talking. And if you can construct technology that allows a consumer to connect with a business, in this case, a provider or a healthcare system or a set of technology in a way that's really fast, really low friction, really natural, requires minimal learning and does the work, then you've solved something kind of big. And it's, it's taken a lot to, to get the pieces of that equation in place to make it possible for the level of friction and simplicity and ease to, to, to happen. It's a combination of big technology services and cloud and the ability to, to, to roll out at scale, uh, computing power, natural language processing and AI technology that's come to the fore now, mobile phones, people having these supercomputers in their hands, the, the, the internet itself. And I mean, all these things in the last 10, 15 years have come into play to make this innovation possible. So what we're talking about with LifeLink is an interface that is language-based. You know, it's not, it's not apps or portals. Uh, it's not learning or encountering lots of information at once. It's one idea at a time. It's I say, you say, it's chat. And if you can take chat and automate workflow in the way that two humans would be doing it, um, it's, it's very, very powerful. So that, that, that essentially is what we're doing. We're, we're, we're bringing that technology and that capability into a range of workflows. Um, and so chatbot is one word for it. I would say that in many ways, what LifeLink is, is, is building are chatbot-based workflow systems. Hmm. And in a lot of ways, it's almost like, because the kind of workflow that we're automating tends to be the, the rote, repetitive, administrative work that humans are doing today using systems we're offloading that work. So the chatbot based systems become a digital workforce. So we can sit, this technology can sit in other technologies. It can sit, you know, in a practice management system. It can sit in an EMR, it can sit in a CRM and become an army of agents that do the, the robotic work that humans are doing, but, but move it to, to robots and, and let the humans do high grade empathetic discernment work that humans are really great at. And, and so that's really what we're pulling off. It's, it's almost in the category of uh, workforce technology, digital workforce technology that sits in other systems and extends those systems and gives them, gives them more power. And Greg, just to um, you know, unpack this a bit more for, for our audience who you know, may not be as familiar with this sort of you know, technology, because um, I mean, you know, LifeLink's a, you know, disruptive, you know, new product. You're one of the pioneers of this category. So 
you know, I'm assuming when Lifelink first started, you know, there's probably so many different workflows or use cases that you explored yeah. that, that could create a lot of value. And I'm, I'm assuming over time you narrowed it to maybe a, a couple today that are your core yep. use cases. Could you, you know, maybe walk our audience through what are the most common use cases that, that you focus sure. on right now and, and, and why is yep. that so valuable for your customers? Yeah, I think our choice of use cases or workflows happens out of this thoughtful work of looking at where one, a specific workflow, a specific area of engagement is highly manual, expensive, cost intensive. But if it were not, if it could be unlocked and scaled, it would deliver lots of value. So the first sort of big thing is, is it a high value workflow? And we target large healthcare systems. We also target pharmaceutical companies and, um, and patient support services, companies that, that are in the pharmaceutical life sciences space. So think of call centers and hubs. Um, so looking for these high value opportunities is sort of the first dimension of checkoff item. The second is, is the work being done today work that is particularly well suited for this kind of technology? In other words, is it is it, is it tactical, repetitive, well-described administrative work that can be offloaded? And third, is it the kind of workflow that a consumer, a patient would, um, would prefer? And I say that because that's one of the things that hit us pretty early. We weren't really, in the first couple of years as we talked to customers and talked to healthcare systems, um, there was this per pervasive bias, I think is the word I would use mm -hmm. that, yes, you could automate a lot of this work, but it was unfortunate in some ways to push it to a digital assistant instead of having a human because the human is the gold standard. I mean, if you could ultimately just magnify the number of humans that could have calls, that would be the best case. It turns out that's not true. That is not true. It is not the case that the human conversation is the gold standard for many of these workflows. It is not the gold standard for intake. It is not, not the gold standard for reminders. It's not the gold standard for a lot of education. Consumers prefer to deal and connect with and interact with a digital assistant for many of these workflows, not all of them, and certainly not the higher cognitive discernment advisory workflows. But for the tactical workflows, it turns out that people don't like the social pressure. They would rather deal with something that's efficient, fast, easy, you know, and so, that's a pretty big, that last piece, that last third rail dimension is a key choice. That, that's, a, that's a key driver to picking out the workflows. So we tend to focus on workflows where we hit all of those numbers. So for example, uh, a patient access center where a patient is trying to get an appointment, set up or look for the right provider appointment, specialty appointment, and to make an appointment request and get options back and lock into that appointment, book it, get reminded that workflow, which is typically handled by a patient access agent today is a perfect one to offload to Lifelink. We see workflows in getting ready for visits, preparing for visits, reminders, intake, registration, consent, the reading of forms, the approval of forms, all, all that can be digitized in the form of these smart conversations. So workflows around getting ready for a visit, uh, coming out of visits, uh, and I should say that, you know, all this workflow can really ride along and connect and be synergistic with 
enterprise software systems and practice management systems that are already doing a lot of this because in some ways, the way to think about this connection is LifeLink can, can just augment and extend a lot of the workflow that's already been established in these other software systems. So we're almost an, a, 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 an outside layer that sits on top of it, but these workflows before and after visits are really perfect for us. And Greg, I, th I think you you made a really powerful insight, which is you know you're you're not trying to force uh, this type of technology on every use case. You're focused on what are the high value, high impact use cases that also um, actually are the favored uh, consumer interaction as well. So I thought that was a really powerful insight. Um, and I was curious, just from the consumer point of view, um, how does that interaction happen? Like, is, is it that LifeLink is embedded? Um, like right on the, the web page of a health system or what are the sort of, I guess, the access points for a patient to interact with LifeLink? Yeah, there's sort of two modalities. The first is what we call passive. And that is, you've probably seen this, your listeners have probably experienced this, which is you arrive on a website and there's a little hovering chat bot icon in that corner. And when you click on it, up pops this conversational. Sometimes it's live chat. Sometimes it's a person actually sitting back there and they're, and, and, and you're, there's some delay and you're talking to a person, but more and more, it's an automated asynchronous experience where that, that chatbot is 24 seven and it's holding a corpus of questions and answers to respond to questions that somebody might have. So that's, that's a chatbot waiting to be launched by a consumer when a consumer clicks on it. The other modality is proactive. We reach out to you. And this happens a lot in workflows where you get a text message on your phone, an SMS text message proactively out to you. And that text might be something like, hi, Josh, I've come, I'm here to remind you of your upcoming appointment. Click here for more information. Because we can't move PHI in a text message. You know, we, we, we wanna make sure we get into a secure channel. And the way we orchestrate that is to include what we call a magic link, which is a, a personalized, uh, key, a, a, a URL key that you click on. And then we run through a fast authentication check to confirm identity. But we move out of the, the text message into a browser-based chat session. So there's no app to download. There's nothing to download. And that little activation maneuver is about a 30-second 30, 30 maneuver. And it's got high activation, low friction. So you move from getting a text message to clicking a link to being in a full conversation. Not a link to a website that's static, but a link that goes to a digital conversation that automates the next umpteen number of steps and moves that you have to take to coordinate that workflow. So that's the second modality. And that, by the way, is just one conversation in potentially a series of conversations over a workflow that might last three hours or three weeks. So that's the proactive, and these things can live together. So you can have both of these modalities and typically when we roll something out, we roll them out for both. Greg, you, you bring up a, a great point about asynchronous communication. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can just unpack that a little bit, maybe explain what is asynchronous communication and, and how do you feel it impacts the patient experience? Yeah, it's, it's, it's one thing to, um, to go virtual. You know, it's one thing to create a virtual space where two people can meet. This is telemedicine, right? This is instead of coming into an office, I meet you virtually. It's what we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing right now is we're having, we're doing a podcast 
virtually, I'm not where you are. I'm in a different place. We snipped the line of location. So it doesn't matter where on the planet we are. We've gotten rid of this big, big barrier that used to exist a hundred years ago, which is we had to actually be in the same place to communicate and get things done. Now we can be anywhere and have a virtual meeting. There's one more snip, which is time. And that is what if we snip the timeline and we don't have to be even in the same time to get stuff done. We don't have to be concurrently in the same place. We can be asynchronously doing this. And the way you do that is with chatbots. You embed and automate all the conversational knowledge and workflow that we would have normally that, that I'd have to give you person to person concurrently in, in the same time. And I snip that line, let it be asynchronous. So this is really the power of automated workflow, which is it can happen without two humans being together. The patient, the consumer can engage in smart workflow that is asynchronous. All the knowledge and guidance and support can happen anytime. Mm -hmm. There's no dependency on being at the same time with somebody. That's what, that's what we mean when we say, say asynchronous. Right. And, and so I, I'm taking from that, um, you know, patients know that they're communicating with a chatbot. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's sort of a core principle, Alan, like this idea that, you know, digital conversations, chatbot based conversations, they're, they're designed conversations. You know, they have to be, think of them as designed, they're automated, but they're, uh, they're multi-branched, they're dynamic. They're, in our case, they're, the way that those conversations unfold and where they go has everything to do with the context that you're in from the protocol standpoint, where you are in a protocol, the data that we know about you, which typically comes from backend systems, EMRs or CRMs or patient access center systems, and what you're doing in the conversation what the patient is saying and what they're relating. So all these things can create a dynamic conversation and a unique conversation that is smart, uh, context aware, even though it's been pre-designed, even though the branches are premeditated. And in fact, in healthcare, as you guys know uh, very well, it's a pretty scary thing if you've got automated technology that's inventing things on the fly. Mm -hmm. if it's black box. And this is one of the challenges we have with AI. You know, there's a lot of really powerful AI technology emerging and concepts emerging, machine learning and neural networks and deep learning and ways to do some really sophisticated automated learning. But if you can't see how the decisions are being made and you can't play back the rules that were used to make these decisions, you, you start to get into some very tricky space. So a lot of what we're doing at LifeLink is automating and taking rules and taking uh, the pathways that we know not only need to be described, but need to be explained and played back and validated and automating those things. And then what we're doing is we're, we're, we're tagging and watching and learning what the best choices across these pathways are. So if we're trying to predict no-shows, patients that are not gonna make it to an appointment, we've got a lot of data now that can show us what the right things to say are. And all these things can be approved, but you're making choices. Should I say this now or this? Should I offer this now or offer it later? So this is really a question of 
taking a lot of these pathways and automated moves and watching how they behave in the wild. And then the learning comes from the data that we collect. And, and, and then you can use that data to make better, better decisions and pathways. So yeah, th I mean, th this is the world we, 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 we live in now. And um, I would say it's very, very early in, in, the, in, in, the, in the life cycle of this technology as it's, as it's now hitting healthcare and consumer engagement. Well, 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 Greg, I know I know it's early, but I'd, I'd love to get your take on, let's say something more futuristic. So, I mean, one of the things Al and I have talked about in the past in the podcast is at some point in the future, you know, it is going to be possible to have, you know, virtual avatars who look and feel like clinicians who maybe if the, yeah. the visual graphics are, are that good, we can't distinguish that they're not a real human and argue that at some point, maybe it, they will seem as if they're real clinicians who can actually um, not only have a clinical conversation, but be able to counsel us for, you know, a new cancer diagnosis, uh, yeah. mental health, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. And I'm curious at some point, if we can reach that level as a, as a human, as a, as a patient consumer, do, do you think we'll, that we'll care if, if it's actually a real human on the other side, or if it just feels like a real human, that it's going to be good enough. Do you have any thoughts about that far down the line in the future? Is there a limit to what we can do with, with something like this? I think the future is, it's pretty exciting, you know, what we're going to see unfold over the next 10, 15 years. You know, the, the, the kinds of jumps we're making in processing power, the, the underlying um, technology, it's, it's all happening very, very fast. However, I do think right now it's easy for a lot of people to fall into the trap I think it's easy to miss sort of the, the bigger things and the bigger mechanics of what needs to happen. We, we do have a shortage of qualified humans in medicine, in nursing, in patient care. We do have a groundswell. We have a large tide of uh, seniors coming in, coming into the, into the population who are going to need lots of care. So we've got a gap. We've got a care gap. And so there's a, there's a need to fulfill to fill that gap, to deliver service and to deliver it scale and improve it. But I really think that we've got to keep our eye on the ball. And, and what we're trying to do here is offload a lot of the work that humans really aren't good at and move it to digital assistants that are really good at it. You know, because we're not just talking about automating a task, not just reaching out to a patient, reminding them, letting them know who their doctor is, you, you know, letting them know how to get there, helping them complete their forms, noticing halfway through the form that, oh, this is a patient that might need a, a depression screener or being versatile enough to, those are all good robotic kind of skills to, to manage. But if the robot can also update 19 systems after that call or after that conversation and speak 19 languages and shift dialogue or diction, depending on who I'm talking to, that becomes a superpower, right? And so we're not just talking about scaling out, we're talking about scaling up in tasks. And if we can knock that out, then really humans should be doing what they're really good at. We don't, you know, that's not a, it, the problem is not how do we get to do a better human at the stuff that human is re really good at. It's to take 70% of the work that humans are not that good at and move it off their place. Cause that's, what, that's where we're spending our time today. So 
I'm a little less obsessed about getting up into high cognitive diagnostic capabilities that a bot or an avatar can do instead of a human. I'm mission driven around offloading the 70, 80% of work that burns humans out and getting that into smart robots that, that patients and consumers prefer because it, it, it is broken right now. I mean, for me to sit on hold waiting to talk to somebody and then getting somebody that needs to be totally introduced to what I'm up to and what, I, what my issue is, that's, that's a broken system. And I, I think we're gonna really see in the next few years how broken that was when really innovative workflows and technology come into play. So I'm excited about the next 10 years of that picture where our convenience, our access, our speed as consumers goes way up. And we've got lots of great trained physician, nurse humans that do all the stuff they're really good at and have plenty of time to do that. Totally agree. Um, I, I just want to shift gears for a minute. So, you know, we're talking about the future and, and what it might bring. Let's shift back to the present for a minute. So obviously COVID put healthcare system is under incredible duress and it's also accelerated the need and, and the demand for digital access. And so, you know, we obviously noticed you just raised a series A. So first, congratulations on that. Mm, um, thank and you. that was less than a month ago. And so what I want to know is what was that experience like raising money during COVID? I mean, in some ways, COVID was, is really a multi-pronged story. You know, of course, it put healthcare systems under incredible pressure. They're, they're still under siege. But the need for uh, digital technology, the virtualization of process, if ever there was a time to see this kind of uh, pronounced need, it was during COVID, you know? So it's clear now that it, it was a catalyst and that catalyst was not just a catalyst for the healthcare systems themselves and for providers of, of healthcare, but for investors who are looking for breakthrough technology opportunities. And so I think in some ways it made, um, fundraising easier you know it, it allowed us to really connect very quickly with investors that that got the picture and saw a moment and COVID became a, a part of our story you know um, that it was the reason that healthcare systems that might have been stuck in one modality for another decade really had to be just jolted into a different gear you know there's no way to handle COVID-19 screening at scale so we launched a series of you know, COVID-19 screener chatbot systems that could give healthcare systems, a, a number of our customers, immediate massive scale in terms of interviewing patients, getting it sorted out, routing them to test, routing them to, to care delivery. Um, and, and, and that's just one example of the hundreds of kinds of things that this technology can do at scale for healthcare systems. So it, it was a wake up call to everybody. And I think it helped us in our fundraising for sure. Uh, Greg, can I, can I ask you, I mean, just thinking back to the beginning, because I think uh, in today's world, obviously, like you said, it's, it's still early innings and, you know, life things been one of the pioneers, but um, I can only imagine that it's it's still better today than it was, you know, several years ago when, when you first started at LifeLink. And I was curious when you think back then, what did you have to do to get those first few health systems working with you? How, how did you convince them? Because at the time, you know, if you're, when you're starting out, you don't have any reference, you know, customers or partners, you're, everything's in your head. I don't know how much you how much of a you know, MVP you had to show for it. So what did it take to get the first few on board in the first place? 
Yeah, I, I think this is so, um, your listeners who are entrepreneurs who are starting companies or looking at startups to bring into their own organizations as they're rolling out and transforming their business, th this is, uh, and I know Josh, you, you and your team, you, you face the same sort of thing. Um, I think it really helps when you're starting a company to be, you get a big leg up when the kind of thing you're doing is in and of itself transformational. You can really hang a lot of, you can get a lot of speed and momentum around a few big ideas. So I gravitate towards opportunities where, you know, getting out of the gate, getting your first customers begins with a big idea. And then, and then you really need to line up with strategic customers, just a few who have the right personalities and who can lean in and connect with you around one or two of those big ideas and take a chance. And that's what we did. You know, we, we, we worked with a handful of very good, big customers. We managed to find our way into the right innovation teams. We talked about a big idea. We did a lot of this, the good old fashioned way, which is to put lots of smart people in the room and, and get as persuasive as you can and be smart about how you could start something and reduce risk and try an experiment and get moving and then show some results and then build from there. And that's how we started. That's how we started. We had a, enough technology. We, we did have an MVP around um, a core conversational platform and an ability to spin up workflows, basically, you know, conversational patterns connected to data that could react on a mobile phone. And, and one of the first places we started was in the emergency department. We started with a, 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 an opportunity to keep patients who are waiting in the ED apprised of their wait time. They could ask the chatbot any questions about how it worked, why they were not being seen right away, what was next, where the vending machine was. It could, it could speak different languages. So we were able to spin up a little pilot with one of our first customers and then show actual results in the area of patient satisfaction, net promoter score, activation times, engagement rates, uh, you know, workflow throughput. And so I, I think there's no easy way to, to, to do this. It does come down to just basic blocking and tackling of, you have to have a, a big idea, something that's transformational. You have to have enough credibility to, to run a pilot and prove it. And you have to find a great partner that's willing to take a chance with you and, and then go from there. I mean, that's, that's always how I've done it. So, you know, at LifeLink, it was no different. Same, same, same pathway. I think the, the concept of having a big idea is, is actually a really good one, Greg. And it, it makes me think about, you know, if you want an organization to do something, you know, new, having a really big idea, I think either qualifies out organizations who don't, who don't want to do anything that disruptive and it qualifies in those who get really excited about a transformational big idea. And I think you're right when you're starting out with something very, very disruptive and new, such as LifeLink several years ago, you want organizations who actually aren't scared about that, but actually are excited by, by the, the big idea. So that actually makes a, a lot of sense. And so I think that's good for our listeners. It, it can't be incremental. Um, yeah, it's very hard if it's incremental. It's, then it's just a pure execution play, right? Then it's, then it's you've got to come in with lots of capital and a better execution mousetrap, which is hard to get out of the gates with. So you almost have to start at the edges with something that's breakthrough and, 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 and real. You know, you're, you're making a bet on something. But, you, but it's got to have enough there that you can convince people. And, and so that's the trick. 
Well, I think I'm really impressed by, by your and the lifelink story. I mean, there's, there's other companies that have, you know, focused on, you know, chatbots and conversational AI, but more in, I guess, other industries. So I mean, we've seen it. I mean, I mean, I know some companies doing it in more just traditional customer support and other things, but, but I mean, frankly, healthcare is, is in many ways more complex. So the yeah. fact that you, your team have chosen to uh, take on such a massive challenge in healthcare, I think speaks volumes about, you know, the quality of your team and the dedication and all that. So mm. kudos to you and the team, Greg. I, that's it's a Thank crazy you. choice to make, but, 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 you know, as a, I think as like, you know, as every consumer being a patient, we appreciate that folks like yourself are willing to, to work on these hard problems. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. Yeah, got it. Greg, you mentioned, um, you know, one of the pilot use cases was around in the ER department or the ED department and kind of this virtual waiting room. I'm curious if you can expand on what this virtual waiting room is and how does it improve patient experience altogether and what have you seen? Yeah, that, that solution, and that's, that's what we call it, the virtual waiting room, is we call it that because it, it ex- extended the boundaries of the waiting room. It, first of all, it, it virtualized the waiting room. So there, in fact, there's no physical space. There's no waiting room. The waiting room is virtual and it stretched it all the way back to your living room hmm. spatially and stretch it all the way back to your first reminder from a time perspective. So four days before your appointment, you get a text message reminding you of your appointment and all the work you would normally do on a clipboard with paper or phone calls to kind of get ready or that you might've done in a waiting room, you can do asynchronously sooner on your own time, whenever you want to in multiple bits. You don't have to do it all at once. And when you kind of orchestrate and design that experience, which is the completion of a number of forms, it could be four or five different forms. It's a medical treatment form, it's a consent form, it's a financial services form, and you make it conversational and you are able to sort of think of these forms all as one experience. So you're not replicating or re-entering the same information over and over again on separate forms. You transform that patient experience. So it's just better. It's less friction, it's easier, it's more convenient, it's more accurate. Um, so our, our virtual waiting room solution is really an intake. It's a pre-visit registration, intake, reminder, and, and glide path into that visit. In fact, it includes when you get to your visit, it includes the option of waiting in your car or not going into the waiting room, which is really what COVID provoked, right? So you don't have to go to, into a waiting room and wait in a chair. You get a text letting you know that your exam room's open and ready and you go right to it. So it changed the whole thing. No more phone calls, no more paperwork, no more waiting, no more waiting room. It's a next generation pre-visit experience. I'm curious as well, Greg, um, beyond just patient experience, which you know can be measured through NPS scores and, and different surveys of patients, what are some of the other success metrics that your, your partners are using to determine you know, the success and ROI of the platform? I mean, our, almost every one of these workflows has a core set of success metrics that we care most about because what we're doing is trying to connect consumers with their care experience and the protocol that they're adhering to. Activation, the percentage of patients that actually click through, authenticate, and engage with the chatbot is, is sort of the ground zero metric that we care about. And we care about it because until you had LifeLink reaching out with a text message and a link to a conversation that was grippy with a very 
fast authentication experience that was not, no passwords, no usernames, no app download. It was broken and slow and clumsy. So, you know, and, and that's why you might see 4% or 7% activation, trying to get a patient to download an app before a visit, hard, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we see 50, 60, sometimes 70% activation rates, not 4%, not 5%. So an order of magnitude higher. The second metric is engagement. For those patients that get through that authentication step and are now chatting, how long do they stay in that conversation? Do they get through the workflow, right? So, and the workflow might be the completion of five forms, not an easy task. It could take 30 minutes, it could take 12 minutes, it could take 14 minutes, and it could happen in multiple sessions. So that's really what we're trying to pull off. I mean, if you can get that done, that means that the four forms that were supposed to be completed by the patient before the visit got completed and are pushed back into Cerner. Wow, okay, now if you can do that for, even 10% of all patients, it's a big deal. But if you're getting 50, 60% activation, and of those activated patients, 90% are completing all their forms, that's like an atomic bomb going off. That's a big deal. And that's, those are the kinds of numbers we're seeing. That these conversations are grippy. It's different than sending a link to a portal mm -hmm. and filling out a form on a portal. When you're talking to somebody, you can do things like explain this or answer a question or pause. And, you know, we're the original interface, the, the language is not just easier, it's grippier. You know, when I say, and I'm waiting for you to say back, I'm waiting, right? That, that, that experience of anticipating and waiting, I'm sure, Josh, this is more in your field than mine, you're the physician, but I, I feel like it's firing off, you know, signals and chemicals in our brains that keep us plugged in and adhering to the conversation. So that interface is not just an easier interface. It's a, it's a magnetic interface. Mm. It holds people in. And we know now from numbers that lifelink conversation versus digital form filling out on a website, it's, it's way better. I mean, Jefferson Health out of Philadelphia ran this exact experience across thousands of patients coming to the website, path, path A, fill out the digital form for an appointment request. Path B, talk to a bot. Mm. And path B was 150% better. Mm. There you go. Why? Why? I mean, it's the same stuff, same questions, same data. How could it be? And I think it has something to do with the original interface. It has to do with language-based grip. Mm -hmm. So that metric is really important. So getting those kinds of percentages are, are key. We also care about NPS and we care about patient satisfaction. So most of these workflows are instrumented at the right time with questions like, can you rate this experience? And we like the happy or not sort of yes or no kind of modality. That's a great way of doing it fast, easy. If you spread it out across a workflow, you get a satisfaction, kind of a pervasive satisfaction barometer across all workflows. And then when you put a lot of volume through it, you get a pervasive sense of satisfaction grading across a whole population. Mm -hmm. Super, super powerful. Its own sort of powerful thing in and of itself. Um, but those, I would say, are the top level metrics we care about. And Greg, just to, to clarify, are you saying that when you measure satisfaction, you, you kind of um, ask uh, the consumer to either give a thumbs up or a thumbs down, but not so much 
you, you can't put a you can't pick a neutral. Is that what you're saying, or we do both? We 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 use you know one through five scores. We we use happy or not. Um, we use both. I'm just I think it's it's a it's a longer conversation, but I think happy or not is one of these things that we sped past and we've got the wrong idea. We had the wrong idea about it. It turns out it's super powerful mm. because if you have volume and you allow more people just to score happy or not, which they'll do more often if it's, if it's not complicated, mm -hmm. then you get the broader truth faster. Yeah. Being roughly right as opposed to precisely wrong. I, I love that because I, I think it's so easy for, for people to rate something in the middle. And when you force someone to say, no, no, either you're either you're on board or you're not, you get closer. It's not perfect, but you get closer yeah. to the real truth or the real intent behind that with how they feel about something. So I, I love that. I, I don't think people do that enough. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Because you got to ask yourself, well, why are we doing it? And if what you're doing is trying to compare clinics, that's, you, you really want broad brushstrokes. You want to see in broad brushstrokes, is the satisfaction, is it significantly higher in one clinic over another and why? And what if we changed a few things? What if we just took, you know, change the hours or change the furniture in one clinic and just saw what happened? So once you've instrumented these workflows with happy or not satisfaction barometers, you, you basically have set up this pervasive A-B testing opportunity for yourselves. You can change anything in any part of the physical world and see it, how it registers from a satisfaction standpoint, if you've made it really high volume. So, and the way to do that is with happy or not. Amazing. So, so Greg, I, I think we've covered a lot of amazing topics today um, from, you know, not just chatbots, it's healthcare, but, you know, entrepreneurship, you know, selling big ideas, um, the consumer experience, all kinds of wonderful things. I think we, Alan, we do want to make sure we get to the, the fast five so we can have our audience learn a bit more about, but Greg, so maybe Alan, it's okay. Can we, can we segue there? Yeah, that's great. Um, so Greg, the, the fast five uh, is basically five questions that we ask you and you can answer it as succinctly as you would like. It could be long answers. It could be short answers, mm -hmm. whatever you feel is, is best for the, the question. Um, so the first question that we have in fast five is what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? That's easy because I love a book and I gift it all the time now. And I, I think we're just recorded. We're not visual here, but um, uh, this is Erica Hall's conversational design. Mm, fitting. It's great. It's really great. She's, I, if, you know, if you care about the stuff, she, you can follow Erica Hall on, um, on Twitter, and, but her books are great. She's got another book on research, but this conversation design, conversational design book is probably the, the, the book I've gifted the most. Awesome. Yeah, we'll, we'll tag her and uh, maybe we'll even get her on the podcast someday. Oh, yeah, she would be awesome. That's amazing. Uh, second question that we have, how has an apparent failure set you up for greater success? I, I have to say, I mean, this is an easy answer for me because in my last company in GT Nexus, we merged out of the gates in 2000 with this cloud-based platform before cloud was really mainstream. And before it was really even accepted. So I was, I spent my days selling into chief procurement officers and heads of manufacturing and supply chain. And I would hear things like, well, Greg, we're not going to put our purchase order in the cloud. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's how it's done now. Mm -hmm. But for the first eight years of that company, it was like pushing a boulder up a hill. It was really hard to get that big idea of putting a whole 
supply chain orchestration platform in the cloud that many companies could plug into and sort of coordinate as a network as opposed to single companies. That big idea took eight years to get across the, the wall. I think if I hadn't, in some ways, you could say that was an apparent failure that to kind of peg the thing that early and then to struggle for so long was a kind of failure. But in retrospect, it's taught me that, you know, sometimes things do take a little time. And if you've got a great idea and you can stay at it, grit is really important. And of course, the next eight years of that company was like a rocket ship. I mean, everything changed because cloud came in and we were sort of already ahead of it. And we had built product. And so, and I feel like in a little bit of a very similar way, we're on the front end of something here. And the first few years are gonna be about changing minds and ideas. But if we're right, if the bet is right, then we're going to see, you know, some really great sort of growth for the company and in this space too. So I, I, I think that is one of the, the, um, the apparent failures that, that I hope will help me in my, my own success in the future. That's great. Uh, question three, would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? I don't want to read people's minds. Um, I, I, I would like to retain some of that mystery. Um, I, I think probably super speed. I, I, uh, I like, I think speed is really, really powerful. Um, so I, I think in terms of just, yeah, I, I, I pick super speed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the same as Josh in my, my own answer. So- Oh, is that right? Okay. That, that mystery of, of not being able to read people's minds, I think is, is yeah. crucial for human interaction and, and just what the relationships are. Awesome. So question four, uh, what is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane? I think um, if, you, if you don't know healthcare, if you're coming into healthcare and, and looking at it, you, you might find it kind of insane how much money uh, and complexity was sort of spent around setting up back-end EMR systems inside healthcare systems. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's not useful. You need systems of record. You need a transactional backbone. But I think this is, we, we've spent an extraordinary amount of money and time setting up backend systems. And I, I will just say the other insane thing is the grip that these systems have. And, you know, coming from supply chain and other parts of the IT tech world, I would never dream that somebody's, some company's backend transactional system they would have to check with the vendor about how they could share information in that system. You buy the system and you put data into it, but it's your system and your data. So I, I think many people would look at that, the way that healthcare systems are restricted or bridled by their vendor around the kind of information that they can share their own information and the restrictions of the use of data inside those systems. I think quite frankly, a lot of companies, a lot of people would look at that and say, that's insane. Mm -hmm. Uh, last question that we have, this is a COVID-19 related question. Uh, what is one hobby or activity you've gotten into since the beginning of the pandemic? Yeah, well, I have to, I'll, I'll, I'll share it. Um, I, so I live in Berkeley, California. I live up in the, I live a few blocks from um, campus, UC Berkeley campus. And this is in the spring. This is of course a great area for um, lots of things, but we have a lot of birds. And um, during the pandemic, my office is in the, in the house, looks out over a patio. 
and uh, my wife set up a couple of bird feeders and we've been seeing just tons of birds. So I've become a little bit of a bird expert. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the apps, I've got the books, I'm, yeah, yeah. I've got binoculars. I've, I'm now paying attention to bird sounds. And yeah. so um, it's, it's okay. kind of, I would, I would say that's one of my, one of the hobbies I picked up as a result of the pandemic. Yeah. That's great. Greg, what I'm hearing is that your next company is going to be ornithology focused. Like you, you <laughs> I think I have my hands full with healthcare. I think that's going to, that's going to, that's going to okay, cover so, me. So, so maybe the veterinary space, we might just merge the yeah. two of your company. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Possibly. That's awesome. That That is great, Greg. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I'm curious, can you now pick up the different sounds and, and attribute it to a different bird? Are you able to do that at this point? Yeah, some. Yeah, wow. maybe a dozen. A dozen of the key ones. We have wow. things like, you know, we've got, you know, lesser finches and spotted toeys and the California toey. And of course, we've got blue jays and robins and, and, and dove. But um, yeah, what you do, you use mnemonics, right? So right. The, the, the lesser finch has a pewee, pewee. Huey sound. And so you sort of attach these words with the calls to the birds. And then, yeah. and once you start doing that, you just notice it everywhere, everywhere right. you walk, you're like, Oh, there's a lesser finch. Oh, there's a toey. There's a, so yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> well, amazing. Uh, you know, looking at the time, Greg, I think we should wrap it up, but uh, do want to thank you so much for being on the show today with us, um, providing a, a ton of insight for our viewers and our listeners on, you know, where the future of digital patient engagement is going and, and what you're doing currently at LifeLink Systems. So thank you so much for, for joining today. Thank you. Thank Greg. you for having me. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed it, Alan. Thanks, Josh. Good to see you again. As always. Have a great day, yep. Greg. All right. Bye.